Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, January 16th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today. Also with us, as usual, associate editor Noah Rothman, author of Rise of the New Puritans. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. We are today going to devote most of the show to our February issue's lead article by that uh, self-same Noah Rothman entitled The Worldwide COVID Revolts. But before we get to that, more classified documents have been found at Joe Biden's Wilmington house, uh, thus uh, making what began as a, oh boy, uh what sauce for the gander should be sauce for the goose story into something I think far more substantive in this sense, which is um, in theory, the special prosecutor who was investigating the matter of Trump's purloined classified documents and, and the obstruction of the efforts to return them to, to the National Archives, the special one who was looking into that should only be looking into that, right? That's his job, Mr. Smith's job, is simply to look at the facts of the case in the Trump case and then recommend uh, prosecution or or not. But that is not Merrick Garland, the Attorney General's job. The Attorney General of the United States is obliged to view the entirety of the political, legal, moral ramifications of the decisions made by his department and make choices there too. And the decision to indict Trump on the mishandling of classified information. And after that, not to figure out some way in which Biden can be disciplined or can be brought to some kind of uh, legal process uh, for the mishandling of classified information strikes me as now being almost impossible to pull off that you really would be creating a situation in which you had two different standards for uh, post administration behavior and, uh, and that the uh, gaslighting of anybody who is inclined to think that Trump uh, is the recipient of mistreatment at the hands of uh, Democrats with political power uh, would just go off the charts into a whole other realm. Does anybody disagree with me about that? I agree, but I'll add, even if you, if on the basis of drilling down to the technicalities, there is reason to hold Trump accountable in a way that you don't hold Biden accountable. At this point, the optics in any event um, make it so that the, the, um, the, the, perception of a double standard is would just be uh too overwhelming and uh, also this generally i mean the fact that they keep finding more um has completely sort of crumbled the effort to make this distinction between well here's what trump did and here's what biden did and here's why they're different but there was there was only a very there's only a small number of biden documents and they were forthcoming about them and they're well, there's more and more documents. They're not that forthcoming. I mean, uh, the, the 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 White House is, you know, at, at least not in the announcing and in in the revelations to the public. Um, 
So it, it's just sort of looking smellier and smellier. Uh, well, I, there is a distinction, and it's not a it's not a rhetorical distinction. There's a legal distinction between uh, not being forthcoming proactively and being actively um, evasive in an effort to mislead investigators. And the, the Trump people made misleading statements to investigators, which is itself prosecutable. So there is a yeah. distinction here between these two this, these two First types of, all, of behaviors that I think matters materially. Yes. And, and, uh, and, and I would we add. Can't be sure, and we can't be sure that what you just said about Biden and the documents or the Biden. We don't have that information. True. Sure. Most certainly. We, we, we don't, don't. We don't know what they knew when we have a narrative that they have that they have laid out for us, which is that somebody f- was going through his office and happened to stumble upon these papers and then called the National Archive. Right. That that's that's the narrative. What we don't know is why they were closing up the office. Why did it take till November to close up the office? Were they, in fact, looking precisely for classified documents because they had some idea that they were there? And why did the second tranche of documents that was uncovered on December 20th, why did it take six weeks for those documents to emerge? As a thought. One more. But one more. And we also don't know why not the original envelope with the classified documents said personal and who wrote that. Right. So we so, don't we don't know. Well, so let's stipulate what we don't know is what we don't know. And then let's let's say for the purposes of argumentation that this all we know right now is all we're ever going to know. And this is the this is the tr- the beginning, middle and end of this story. Then not moving forward with a prosecution against Trump just because it would be politically embarrassing is just as much a travesty of justice, just as much a politicization of the ju- of the process of this, the dispassionate prosecution of statute violation as anything else. I mean, if we're just well, talking about optics okay. and appearance and what have you, then yeah, then, then, it's then there is just, no justice. But it's not just optics. It really isn't just optics. So if the, the if the root core issue is the mishandling of classified information and Trump did it and Biden did it, and then what you prosecute Trump for is uh, misleading and trying to obstruct the effort to get the documents back, you are indicting him on a secondary charge and you were almost indicting him because it's the thing that he did that Biden didn't do. <laughs> and so <clears throat> when I say Merrick Island has Garland, the attorney general has to look at the entirety of the matter. Of course it matters whether 40 million people think that a horrible miscarriage of justice is taking place. That's not, this is not something that comes into play in almost any other prosecutable case in the history of the world in which you have this set of this fact pattern. Biden took classified documents out of the White House. Trump took classified documents out of the White House. Trump had them at his house. Biden had them at his house. Trump, what what you have is Trump lawyers, I mean, people saying, uh, Mr. President, please return the documents to the National Archives. Trump returning some of the documents, then saying to his people, tell them that we returned everything, but keeping some of them in his basement and moving them around. Biden just had them for seven years, six years. Uh, 
that is not going to sit well with an enormous number of people. And we know that uh, keeping people in a position in which they trust that their government is doing the right things for the right reasons is a key task of government. Uh, Filling the heart's desire of anti-Trump people to have him, you know, put in the docket uh, may have horrible ancillary consequences. Right, but not um, prosecuting Trump because it would look bad is the wrong thing for the wrong reason. It's not looking, looking, I agree with you that you can't prosecute him because it would look, that you can't not prosecute him because it would look bad. What I do not agree with you with about is the idea that you prosecute him notwithstanding the fact that as i say 40 million people will think that he is dreyfus and this is the dreyfus affair and that he is being this is a frame up to keep him out of 2024 and you know that is because they're not coming after biden now it's not actually the job of the justice department precisely to come after the sitting president of the united states for violations it is the job of the congress to decide whether he needs to be impeached and removed from office convicted for malfeasance that is how the constitution sets this up and obviously i would say you would have a case under those circumstances in which you could have a you could have a republican congress impeaching biden the minute the Trump is indicted, should Trump be indicted, on the charge that he mishandled classified information and can no longer serve as president. And then the shoe is on the other foot for the Democrats in the Senate, who presumably many of them will issue statements in support of Trump's indictment or something like that, which is why you have a a different kind of potentially looming political crisis caused by the indictment of trump under these circumstances that have will have unintended consequences and enormous ramifications for the legitimacy of our government or joe biden by the way, pull in. i'm sorry please <clears throat> well just picking up on john's point about the six years that biden has had these um isn't the fact that no one has come looking for these classified documents in six years also something that we have to reckon with, also something we have to sort of figure out uh, when when do these when are these documents sought? How common is it to just say, you know, eh, maybe we're missing a few. Uh, And so and sort of how exceptional was it to be vigilant about it in Trump's case? And if there's a, you know, a straight line equivalency between these two cases, why hasn't Joe Biden just performed a beatification over these documents, deemed them classified in his own head, as we argued for a couple of weeks, the president can probably do and just make the scandal go away? Because he wasn't president when he got him. He is now. Yeah, but you can't re- you can't retroactively <laughs> classify. So that is actually you can retroactively is... declassify. Absolutely. No, you cannot retroactively declassify something that is classified on the grounds that you just want it to be declassified. I mean, yes, the president can declassify. (laughs) But he could. Okay, so let's have another legitimacy crisis. Go right ahead. 
Have but Biden they still, pardoned, but they Biden still can pardon himself. Also, we already had that argument with Trump. Could Trump pardon himself? Could Biden pardon himself? No, but in Biden's case, they they still would have been classified when he took them. But yeah, but Noah's right. Like he can declare. Yeah. So then, but okay. So let's just work work this through. Um, the the argument that will be made and is already being made, which is true and has been an argument being made for twenty years, is that too many documents of the federal government are classified. Obama said it. A law was passed in 2011 to declassify documents. Everybody wants to classify everything. I think the example I gave last week was the menu of the you know executive lunchroom at the CIA that's issued is classified because every document at Langley is classified. So when they say you know you can have the Navy bean soup uh, today for lunch, that's actually a classified document. That's crazy, right? That shouldn't be a classified document. We don't know what he had in his house. And the weird, as I say, the weird and interesting problem here is the worse the purloining is, the less we should, as the American public, know what it was that was purloined. The more sensitive the document, <clears throat> the whole purpose of the classification is to keep it from public view forever. If if they either if both of them had highly sensitive classified information. We should not know what, what what it was. If the only way to prosecute them properly is to release information that says you want to know what this said, da 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 da, which I guess in an open courtroom becomes an enormously ticklish problem. Right? Let's say they want to prosecute Trump for having really recklessly mishandled documents, and the documents themselves are were incredibly sensitive. Trump gets to defend himself in a courtroom by saying, "Yeah." So it's like, let's say the document are about, is about the sex life of a foreign leader, which we're led to believe may, may be something that was in Trump's possession. So Trump says, everybody knows these guys cheat on their wives. Uh, but you got to let me say in an open courtroom that the document said he cheats on his wife, because then I can say, is that really something you want to go to the mattresses over? That, that that's what the document says. Like, there is no angle in which you can see this not blowing up 75 different ways as a result of prosecuting it in a way that would be worse unless your ultimate goal is to deny Donald Trump the possibility of running again for the presidency, which is an ultimate goal. And then the question I guess you got to raise is, is that goal so significant for Democrats and liberals that they would be willing to sacrifice Biden's running again for president or the humiliation of Biden or the impeachment and conviction of Biden. How, if you were a Democrat in the Senate and the Republicans impeach Biden for mishandling classified information after Trump's prosecuted for the same, how do you believe in the legitimacy of one prosecution and not believe in the legitimacy of the other? Oh, there's a whole the mythos. Uh, there's a whole mythos on the Democratic Party side that well, would welcome an impeachment, an effort to impeach Joe Biden, on political grounds. They have no reason to believe, based on the last thirty years of American politics, that that kind of effort would redound negatively to their political interests. If Trump is prosecuted and Biden skates on exactly the same fact pattern, 
they're there it's not that we're going to have civil you know like people in kentucky aren't going to be firing guns on people in massachusetts but we will come as close to civil we will come as close to a circumstance like that particularly at the political level in 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 political uh struggles as we would ever ever come i mean that negates the whole purpose of a special counsel the special counsel no longer exists in the form that it was first created independent special counsels were brought into law on the on the understanding that they would be completely divorced from all political considerations and they were therefore officials out of the line of executive management right that was post watergate an independent counsel had no budget he didn't have to go to anybody for bleh, and he did, indicted whoever he had and the um and that law was allowed to sunset and does not exist anymore the special counsel is an employee of the justice department and works for the attorney general and can be fired by the attorney general that is the rule he is now a subofficial of the executive branch and <clears throat> not an independent actor so you appoint an independent counsel to get the heat off you if you're attorney general but it's a but in the end it's a distinction without a difference because garland is the one who ultimately has to make the decision here which of course then means the question is does that mean biden will be making the decision and if you're biden maybe you can't how about this for your conundrum biden says you can't indict trump because you're 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 throwing me into the you're throwing me into a terrible situation here with my own situation don't indict trump and then what does garland do garland resign <laughs> the way you know i mean garland resigned because his 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 independence his understanding of the law is being breached by by political nasty political considerations i mean i'm just saying this is this is an unholy mess it is an unholy mess and you know what else is an unholy mess uh covid this is an unholy mess I was looking at the numbers. So according to the New York Times, just today, okay, close to 500 people are dying a day of COVID in the United States, according to the Times' tracker. If I had told you, here it is, 564 people died uh, of COVID. It says average on January 15th. I don't even know what that means anymore, these numbers, exactly. Um. Deaths, 564. Um, now, if I told you 18 months ago that 500 people would be dying a day from COVID in the United States and that uh, COVID would have left the front pages, would you have thought that that could have been possible? Didn't we no. think at the time that like deaths would have to be under 100 or something like that? Well, I guess they were. We're in the midst of a, I don't know if they were under 100 per se, but they were a lot less than this. <clears throat> and we're in the midst of a surge. So that preceded this current non-reaction that you're chronicling preceded a real slowdown to the degree that it just left the public imagination. Okay, let me propose this, and then, then I really want to get to your article. 
Mm-hmm. My proposal is that the reason that this is no longer news is that people now understand that nothing in this at this moment, this is not before and it's not now. It's now. It's only now. Nothing works to prevent the spread of COVID. That's the, that's the new wrinkle. So first, people thought that masking and social distancing would prevent the spread of COVID. Then, then the vaccines came along, and the vaccines not only could but did prevent the spread of COVID, the original variant and, and the Delta variant. Now, the vaccine appears to be inefficient or totally ineffectual in uh, containing the spread. So there's nothing left. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to be done. I think there is no mitigating strategy any longer. So when people want there to be mitigating strategies, they say mask up again, or they say something or other, but they can't even say get the booster, get that. They can, but just too many people know people who've gotten the four or five shots and then get it again. That's part of it. The other part of it. Yeah. the, The other part of it is, Everyone who's looking at these numbers now has gotten it and survived. Um, ah, so so the the panic of I don't want it because I'm going to die um, is is no longer palpable and no longer widespread. I, I see it's very interesting to me because the sort of anti-vax people and the people who, you know, who feel that, you know, the effort to uh, do masking and social distancing and then to force everybody to get vaccinated was all totalitarian have now gleefully latched on to the fact that this last couple of months shows that vaccines never worked and masking never worked and social distancing never worked. And now there's going to be a reckoning and everybody's going to, Fauci is going to go to jail. That is preposterous. Like, I'm saying right now, I haven't gotten the booster because I don't really see the point. Because I, you know, I mean, anecdotally, well, you got one, didn't you? No, I, yeah, I've had three shots, right? But anecdotally, I mean, half the people that I, half the people that I know, have gotten it after, including the two of you, have gotten it after shots, and and. And uh, my father, and whose birthday it is today, by the way, happy birthday, happy 93rd birthday to my father. Anyway, he got COVID. Everybody gets COVID. I haven't gotten it again, but maybe I will. Maybe I have. I don't even know. Who knows? But I certainly believe that getting the vaccine in 2021 was an incredible mitigating factor. Now, does that mean that, you know, it's like, Maybe vaccine is the wrong word for it. I don't know. Maybe we co- it was called a vaccine. It's not really a vaccine. Do you call the flu shot a vaccine? I guess you do. But to the extent that vaccines are supposed to provide very long-term protections from getting a disease, right? I mean, because you get the disease, you contract the disease, you create the antibodies for the disease, they live in your system, and they kill off mumps forever. Or they kill it off for 40 years or whatever. Maybe that's not the process with these mRNA reasons. I'm not a I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not a scientist and I'm not a doctor, but but you do um, call I mean colloquially people call the flu shot the flu shot. Right. Um 
and not you don't you don't say hey did you get the flu vaccine this year you said did you get the flu shot and the idea it, it's understood it's baked in that it, it could help it That's could it. help it right. kills off the variants it kills off the flu from last year which may still be hanging around for all we know the delta vaccine i mean i know there's this idea that if the if the flu doesn't uh, transmit then it dies because it needs to be attached to people but if delta and the original variant <clears throat> aren't are still hanging around, you may have protections from it forever from what from what you got. And if we start do getting if we do start getting co annual COVID variant shots, we will get them on that grounds, right? They'll figure out this whatever the, I can't even remember the name of this variant, which itself is pretty amazing that I can't remember the name of this variant B one I five or whatever it is. Uh. You know, if they figure out that and then they can vaccinate against that, then you'll get that shot in September of next year. And it's like, well, if it's still around, this will kill it off. But maybe there'll be another variant. Um, but I think that's it. That and and now we have what's going on in China, which is that China said, Oh, the hell with it. Right? Two and a half years, and they're like, All right, it's causing too much trouble. We're just gonna let loose and see what happens. Uh, so Noah, let's get to your piece. But I'm sorry, before we get to your piece, I got to talk to you guys about Bowen Branch. If I can find my friends here at Bowen Branch, stay cozy all winter long with a set of buttery soft sheets from Bowen Branch. It was freezing last night in New York, walking my dog late at night. She was upset. I was upset. Man, I would have loved after that late night walk to get back in into my house and slip into some Bolin Branch sheets made with 100% organic cotton threads that get softer after every wash. I mean, come on. They use the highest quality threads on earth. Their sheets are made from slow-grown organic cotton for a superior softness and better night's sleep. Buttery to the touch. Super breathable. They're perfect for both cooler and warmer months. Loved by millions of sleepers, including our own Noah Rothman. So luxurious, loved by three US presidents, over 10,000 rave reviews. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at ballandbranch.com. Make the most of bedtime with Ball and Branch sheets. That's B O L L A N D B R A N C H.com. Promo code commentary for 15% off. And we thank Ball and Branch for sponsoring the commentary podcast. Noah. You noted a very interesting phenomenon at the end of last year, and you said, I think I got to write about this. And I said, you're right, which is COVID has been an enormously destabilizing political force everywhere, and nobody is talking about it. Well, not in those terms. Yeah. So <clears throat> um, forgive the brief monologue here, but it's a nine page essay. So I began with a, a question at the beginning of December, a question in my head. Why did what seemed to me like this unstoppable juggernaut of a revolt against the COVID mitigation apparatus in the United States appear to fizzle in the 2022 midterms when it was preceded by so much unrest, so much civil and political dysfunction in the United States and indeed the rest of the world? The story to me of 2022 seemed to me to be a global revolt against the status quo that pertained during the pandemic. And it began almost day one of 2022 in Europe, where there were mass unrest, mass unrest in European cities, every European capital and just about every city of major, of appreciable size. Um, the Bulgarian government 
uh, uh, buildings were sacked. The Ministry of Health was attacked, uh, sort of January 6th style, by a mob. In Germany and the Netherlands, there were riots that were put down violently. And governments began to pare back restrictions that they were imposing amid this Omicron surge uh, based on two uh, competing factors. One, the futility of attempting to contain Omicron, Omicron. And two, the fact that the only uh, recognizable effect of these uh, of these policies that just wouldn't go away was political destabilization. A couple of weeks after that, you had the Canadian trucker convoy, which um, was violently dispersed in Ottawa. And it created this movement that took over the Anglophonic world. There were riots in New Zealand and Australia. There were similar movements in the United States, mass protest um, that was uh, met with police force and had appreciable effects on the political environment. Uh, these restrictions were pared back by their governments quickly in response to this civil unrest. And it sort of went unrecognized as such, in part, I think, because in the West and among press outlets and influencers, there was this effort to decouple the response to the unrest from the unrest itself. There was a, a conspiracy of interests that tried to lead you to believe that everybody loved these restrictions or at least could live with them. And it was worse in the non-democratic world. In Cuba, initially, they started, started this ball rolling in 2021. There was mass unrest, civil unrest, and sort of multiple factors led to it. Um, but it has continued throughout 2022. Uh, and there were concessions that were made by Havana to these protesters in the form of loosened economic restrictions. In Sri Lanka, if everybody recalls, there was this revolution overthrew this dynast regime that had sparked constitutional crises, had attempted to reduce the independence of the judiciary, had staffed the government with family members. Um, the protesters didn't seek democratic reforms when they marched on these government buildings and overthrew the government, but they got them. The story is much the same in Iran. Uh, there was unrest before COVID, but the new protests look a lot like Cuba's protest insofar as there is no class distinctions around them. They are rallying around the idea of liberty, not the price of eggs or petrol, which is traditionally what you see civil unrest um, materializing in Iran about. And in 2021, there were these water rationing protests, which became a COVID crisis in themselves because the government's effort to uh, restrict uh, social interaction ended up uh, reducing the populace's ability to access this water. And it became a crisis for the regime insofar as the regime's mitigation strategies, COVID mitigation strategies, ended up conflicting with its prime directive, which is to keep these conservative areas of the country happy because that's where the regime's base of support is. And after Masha Amani's death, all these anti-regime protests became a, a revolutionary movement. And the regime itself took action and, and conceded to the protesters' demands by throwing the religious police under the bus. Now, maybe they don't actually mean it, but this is a product of the revolution that the regime said, okay, well, we can dispense with that. That's new. That's shockingly unique. And it's much the same in China, where you had these rolling lockdowns. In April of last year, Shanghai was the, the most visible among them. It was a very dystopian movement. But then you had this bus crash in September. You had the Arumki fire in November. Mass protests erupted, and China again relented. They ended their COVID zero policy. They dismantled these testing and quarantine, makeshift quarantine facilities that are ubiquitous, gone. And this odious app that everybody hated that restricts your access to banking, to movement, what have you, it just suddenly stopped working. More concessions to these protesters. So to answer my original question, why was there a fizzle? And the answer is that there is no fizzle. The United, the United States response 
the effort to overthrow this COVID mitigation regime was simply one of the world's most efficient because it was mostly gone by the time the rest of the world erupted in street action. Street action was not necessary in the United States. So why right. didn't we recognize it as, as this? And my answer is that there was this vast conspiracy, not a spoken one, but a, a conspiracy of interests to not recognize this as the same story. This, this is all the same story. They are chapters of the same story. And there was an effort on the part of people who are best positioned to recognize emerging geopolitical trends. They had an incentive to ignore or downplay what was the same story because they were troubled by the story, which was that the, the COVID regime was not sustainable and ended up producing only civil unrest and destabilized political uh, cultures in these countries. And it didn't have the, the effect that it was designed to have, which is to mitigate the virus itself. So what we see in China now was the lifting of almost all COVID restrictions. China is now releasing information over the weekend said that since November, when they when they lifted the COVID restrictions, 300,000 people have died of COVID in two months. OK, world's most populous country, five times the number of of of, of Chinese as as there are Americans. Um how about this for a not a conspiracy theory, but a but a but a pressure release valve thing, which is that uh, China one day or other was going to have to reckon with what it did here, and that <clears throat> in announcing <clears throat> that they were dropping all restrictions, uh, they are now going to uh, dribble out information about what actually happened in China, but claim that all of it happened since November of 2022. So they're saying 300,000 deaths. You know, it's way more than that. If it's 300,000 deaths just in two months as a result of lifting COVID restrictions, but they claim, I don't know, fewer than 100,000 deaths or something like that over the last two and a half years, you know that's not true. You know we've heard stories about mass graves. You know we've heard stories about stuff happening in the provinces that, we, that, that have been uh, kept from people. And in lifting the restrictions they are now going to be in a position where they can slowly but surely harmonize their books to try to make it clear to say, well, all this terrible stuff did happen, but it only happened now. And uh, I think that that argument, which is a, a little bit of a conspiracy theory, nonetheless, is like the modified limited hangout politics of the United States, it's sort of like that. Well, okay, three hundred thousand. You know what? Now, after another couple of weeks, it's actually a million, and in by March, it'll be two million, and then they will actually be at the number of people who actually died from COVID that they had to keep from everybody because they were rightly terrified that the entire world would turn its ire on them <clears throat> if they acknowledged the extent to which what happened there. Uh, was deadly to their people and that they had released this in some fashion or other into the world and have suffered. Not only did they not suffer any consequence, but of course there was a COVID manufacturing boom. Uh, you know, we had to import immense amounts of goods to keep up with the diet of Americans who were no longer able to go out and do things, but had to do them at home. And, uh, you know, they themselves, according to a what what was it? According to the Washington Post and the New York Times, COVID was itself a business opportunity for China in China. Yeah, well, Noah had the the, the figure this morning. Uh, um, was about, it one, it was one from the New York Times? 
In the New York Times, it cites a report that estimates that roughly 1.3% of all of China's GDP is attributable to COVID testing. Talk about a terrible capital investment. Well, well, so the fascinating thing now is that, that, so now there's this new layer of unrest in China on top of just um, the resistance to the COVID COVID regime. Um, (laughs) People are up in arms and protesting violently because since they've shut down the COVID regime, they've put a lot of people out of work. Um, it's almost not a only remind- that, but they're trying to stiff the workers that they had. Right. It's like, okay, well, I guess the COVID testing regime is over. We're going to close up shop. Screw all you guys. You're not going to get your last month's pay. Because, um, you know, if there's one thing you know about Chinese business practices, it's that they're just incredibly moral and above board. And, you know, they really care about their workforce and being fair to their workforce. So, yeah, so you now have this. It's like, okay, where's my money? You know, uh, I was running the app that they disabled, and now, you know. And not only was, that. Not- I, I, they used to send me to solder people into their into their apartment block. Exactly. And now I don't have my soldering gun isn't being paid for. Right. So you you, you also you put out of work. It reminds me of, uh, in some ways, the, the, the debathification of Saddam's Iraq, where you where you suddenly put this army of thugs out of out of business, um, you have this this enforcer army in China, um, uh, in you know white hazmat suits who are corralling people and and pushing them around and taking them from place to place to be quarantined and and the rest of it and and uh, they're they're out of work they're they're you know where's their where's their power where's their paycheck, um, you know by the way John you say it's a conspiracy theory but. The Chinese Communist Party is a is conspiratorial. Is it, yeah, you're, you're, you're entitled to a conspiracy theory here. Of course it is. Um, you know, then we have other we have other sort of geopolitical ancillary COVID revolt or COVID uh, based things that have led to things that revolts are not to quite quite the right word for, but um, you know there is this theory that COVID drove putin crazy that 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 putin was exceptionally isolated panicked terrified of getting covid lived in almost total isolation for a long time and that that isolation may have contributed to his decision to invade ukraine uh and that therefore the uh resistance to uh his um a demented idea about swallowing up another uh, country that obviously uh, turns out to have had the resources to um, to uh, stand up to him uh, was a species of not being in and around the world for two years and just being in his own head and like, oh, I'm going to take Ukraine now and not sort of having the ordinary day-to-day human interactions, not that it would make him feel, you know, not that he would have humanitarian concerns that would let him leave Ukraine alone, but more like when you live inside your own head and you have all these scenarios bopping around, particularly after America flees Afghanistan with its tails between its legs, with the horrible images that we saw in uh, August of 2021, 
you're like, I'm going to do this. And somehow the ordinary interactions that might lead people to go, I really, okay, well, let's have a meeting and an hour we'll all sit around a table. You see, they can go here. We can go there. It's going to be, it's going to be March. There's going to be a lot of mud. Our tanks will get caught in the mud, all of that. No, none of those conversations could take place in, in normal, in a normal traditional way. I mean, that's the biggest event of the last two years, uh, aside from, you know, aside from uh, from COVID itself, the invasion of Ukraine. And it arguably is an offshoot of COVID. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll need Putin to die and for him not to have killed everybody who was in his inner circle who can then let us know what actually was going on there when he's dead uh, to, to clarify that. But it seems a very plausible theory. Since it's a very plausible the world- theory. Yeah, go ahead. it's a perfectly plausible theory, and and the one of the notes that I try to end on is that this this wave of revolutionary sentiment doesn't necessarily have an outlet yet, and we may be staring down the barrel of a decade uh, in which this the catalyst that we that sparked these revolutionary tendencies doesn't abate and actually needs another outlet. We could be looking at a a very interesting decade geopolitically um insofar as these sentiments don't have anywhere to go but that doesn't mean they're gone and they will continue to exert their influence on on despotic regimes or talk autocratic regimes but also in the west also in these democratic societies where some of these de- demands of these protesters were met but not all of them and there's this sentiment abroad that um needs somewhere to go i don't know what it's going to look like but it's not like these the demands of the, the revolutionary elements here in these states have been met. They've just been sort of quieted. Yeah. And, you know, because nothing snaps back into place as it was. Right. Every, everything is now distorted and changed. And in, in non autocratic countries, I think the what the lasting effect here, even even though, as, as Noah says correctly, we sort of managed our anti anti lockdown fervor. Uh, more efficiently and uh, successfully. Um, what has stuck with us is this haunting feeling about how debate was shut down. Um, uh, and that was in a in a more dramatic way than we've ever seen, I think. Uh, you know, this, this idea that uh, if you disagree with the prevailing wisdom of, of, uh, of public health officials and of the government, you are spreading uh, disinformation. You are anti-science, um, and your opinion is invalid. And you, it will be marked as such on social media. Um, that has added something new, I think, uh, to our political culture that will not go away anytime soon, and will take on all sorts of interesting colorations. Absolutely, it would be and, bizarre know, if yeah. this pandemic was the only pandemic in history not to inspire revolutionary activity. All the right. the history of pandemics on the planet Earth has been a, a preceding dramatic political changes, sometimes good, mostly bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, political political shifts, dramatic revolutionary political shifts tend to follow um, big big epidemiological events like this. Right. But I think Abe is right that that we 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 just we don't know. Look, arguably. Uh, the political the the election of 2020 turned on covid and trump was found wanting in his response and lost the presidency because of it you know had he been more 
Bush, George W. Bush like, I don't know, you'd have to game out how that that would be. But if he had been more resolute, calmer, more more in charge, more avuncular, whatever, had he been in that position and had the mainstream media allowed him to play that in some fashion or other, uh, we would be looking at a very different political present than we do now. So we already have the change in the American presidency as a result of COVID. We have the backlash. Your efficiency point, I think, Noah, is very important because it turns out that it was the off-year elections of 2021 that actually succeeded in putting the fear of God into elected politicians in the United States who may have looked at polls that said that 70% of people were fine with strict COVID regimes and all of that, but they saw the Democrats fall in Virginia. They saw the Democrats almost lose in New Jersey. They saw these revolts at the school board level all across the country. They saw in 2022, they saw Chesa Boudin being recalled in California, and they were like, ah, we're going to talk about anything other than COVID. Right. So, so that's whatever the we're going to do. Yeah. That's the other piece of the puzzle is why weren't Repu didn't Republicans benefit in 2022, which is the primary, you know, catalyst for this for this piece. And the answer that, you know, you actually prodded me to come up with and that I came up with is that uh, all Republicans did not respond to the political incentives, which were uh, insofar as you could tell from the last three elections that normalcy is the goal. And Republicans weren't offering normalcy. They weren't offering a return to the status quo ante. They were offering their own form of revolutionary political change. After right. twenty after twenty twenty in particular, after the uh, the stolen election narrative, and then how every single Republican had to pay obeisance to that narrative, or at least you know sort of evince some you know a clever uh, a, you know proximity to it themselves. Um, they they weren't satisfying the public's demand for a return to the status quo ante either. Right. And as I say, Democrats may have mitigated their own downside from COVID enough. So who is the face of the harsh COVID regime as a politician who got so much praise and all that? Andrew Cuomo, gone, right? Gone, basically forced to resign from office, not over COVID, except it was about COVID. It was about how he manhandled women. It was not about how he, how he manhandled women. It was about how he sent people back to nursing homes to die and lied about it. And the women story was, for some reason, the narrative that had to emerge to be the thing that got him out of office. Otherwise, and again, this is not a conspiracy. This is it's the same the with Chesa Boudin, works. really. Right. If you if you think about it. Yeah. Because it wasn't just, I mean, crime. Yeah, he was not prosecuting crime. But why wasn't he prosecuting crime? Yeah, well, because, and... yeah, you couldn't send people to jail because <laughs> they would be, they would get sick from COVID. But the point is, it's not a conspiracy it's that things happen in weird corkscrew ways at these moments. And the and as I think, Noah, as you end with uh, very pregnantly, weird corkscrew things are going to happen throughout this decade that we cannot anticipate. The invasion of Ukraine, we did not anticipate. The various other things that have happened, we could not anticipate. And, and when you can't anticipate them, you can't anticipate them. But... Uh, just to make the point about unanticipatable and why politics is so interesting uh, and not as dull as people tend to think it is, uh, you know, without even without, you know, Trump in the center of it, 
Um, who would have thought two weeks ago that we would be talking about Joe Biden and classified information? You just never know. You never know what is who would have thought that Marjorie Taylor Greene would become like an inside player talking about, oh, my God, Lauren Boebert is crazy. Like you never things move in weird and unexpected ways all the time. And we're constantly trying to harness them and say, look, I mean, based on the, you know, based on what happened in 1917, obviously, thus and such will, you know, we've not not in 160 years has there been a speaker vote that went to 15 ballots. Okay, so it went to 15 ballots. Here we are a week later. And I asked this at the time, are we going to remember in July how many ballots Kevin McCarthy's speakership went to? It'll either be, his speakership will either go well or it'll go poorly based on the same political events, the same political facts that he faced that made it possible for that ballot to go to 15 you know that vote to go to 15 ballots but the vote to go to 15 ballots is itself not important and will not be important particularly except as a revelation of republican disarray but um i just think you know don't try to straight line anything and particularly now we just can't there's no straight line projection here none that's Noah Rothman's article, The Worldwide COVID Revolts. It should be up on our website at commentary.org as you're li listening to this, along with enormous amounts of goodies in the same issue. Elliot Abrams on the crazy, hysterical overreaction to the Israeli election results. Also a great piece by Mir Soloveitchik on the crazy, hysterical overreaction to the idea that Jews should be allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. Uh, Eli Lake on the Twitter files and what they show. Our own Abe Greenwald on Cormac McCarthy's two kind of Jewish novels uh, released almost simultaneously last year and a whole nest of, uh, of, of other riches. That's at commentary.org. Noah's piece right there uh, when you finish listening to this podcast, which you will be doing right now. So for Abe and Noah and the absent Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.